morning. You want to turn with me in your Bibles, Leon, to Acts chapter Acts chapter two. We're going to be turning again to our study in the Book of Acts. Acts chapter two. We'll be reading from verse forty to the end of the chapter. We're continuing our series. As we read in Acts, this is God's outworking purpose through the risen Lord Jesus by the Spirit. So it's an unfolding story of how God has fulfilled. We, in chapter 2, we, really, um, we came to see that the promise of the Holy Spirit became a reality when the Spirit descended on the disciples at Pentecost. Do you remember that, where the disciples began to speak in other languages? And all the people that came from all these nations were hearing in their own language, the miraculous works of God. That was uh, as the plan of God, as Jesus promised his disciples. And that's what we witnessed in chapter 2. And then Peter, the fisherman, he stands up and he gives the very first sermon in Acts. Um, and he draws in attention to how this was an anticipated fulfillment of God's purposes. Really wonderful part. And we're, we're now going to pick up in verse 40. And we'll just finish the chapter. So let me, let's hear God's word as I, as I read uh, verse 40 to 47. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Do you notice the apostle Peter there in verse 40, he urged his hearers to be saved from this corrupt generation. Uh, today, we're quite a few generations from the generation he was speaking to. We, you could define a generation as a group of people who were born with a, within a certain time period and who have a shared experience and age, and therefore that shapes a distinct worldview. Um, there's groups like Barna Research and the Pew Center. They, they spend a lot of time understanding demographics of each generation and various differences between them. Uh, millennials are now moving into their 40s. So the baby boomers and Gen Xers, you got to stop blaming them for everything. Uh, they're, they're getting older. Uh, my wife and I, we're parents of what they call the Gen Z. 
This is a generation that is native to digital technology. And this is why you, you know, grandparents have always asked their grandkids to fix their phones and <laughs> smartwatches and stuff. But listen to the statistic. 50% of the world population are millennials and Gen Z. 50% of the world population. So it's something important to understand for us. Matt Smethers wrote, in order to share our faith effectively, we need to know our audience. And not only know someone's name and maybe where they go to school, or what they do for a living, but as the saying goes, where are they coming from? So on the one hand, we don't want to overemphasize this because regardless of age, culture, background, we're all made in God's image and we've all rebelled against God. No matter our context, we all need rescue from our deserved plight. The, and the good news of the Bible is applicable to every society, every generation, because the bad news is relevant to every sinner. But we also don't want to underemphasize how our generation shapes our thinking and perspective on life. Culture has a bearing on how people hear the gospel, the Christian message. And Peter recognizes this, that his hearers are not individual, isolated sinners. Instead, we all participate in a whole mindset and worldview of our culture in general. We're influenced more by our culture than we come to realize. And your generation should not be determinative of your beliefs. We're not to believe based on our peers and based on what is true or popular. These are not to be the guiding principles for us, but instead the truth of the gospel and the work of the Spirit of God is to shape our, all of our thinking. And so to become a Christian means there's a whole new mentality to life. Uh, the gospel changes everything about our priorities, our relationships, our faith, our work, our ethics, our racial and cultural identity. Peter's saying to be saved from this corrupt generation is to enter into a new generation, a whole new people under the lordship of Christ. You might be born a Jew in AD 30, but he's saying that cultural mindset is not in line with the gospel. Jesus is creating a counter-cultural community. Not first century Roman, he's not directing them in that direction, but nor is he saying go deeper into Judaism. He's creating something else. God is creating a third race of people. His design is for believers to be the new generation, saved and rescued, and then sent back into their culture to be a witness for Jesus. Tim Chester defined the church this way. The church then is not something additional or optional. It's at the very heart of God's purposes. Jesus came to create a people who would model what it means to live under the lordship of Christ. It would be a glorious outpost of the kingdom of God, an embassy of heaven on earth. The church is to be where the world can see what it means to be truly human. This is God's design for every generation, that every generation would have a witness, a church, a body of Christ that represents life under God's rulership, that we'd be saved from the judgment that'll come on each and every generation and enter into the kingdom he has prepared for us. So at the end of this sermon, uh, Peter's sermon, he, he's saying, he exhorts them 
about this generation. And then he says this in verse 41, or it says this in verse 4, and it concludes, those who accepted this message, who repented and, or, and turned to the Lord, were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. Now, imagine going from 120 people in, as you read about in chapter 1, to your first membership class had 3,000 people. You know, this is, where do you meet? That's why they're in the temple courts. <clears throat> and the, and the, it's not like these 3,000 people became the dominant culture. There's still only 1% to 2% of the population in Jerusalem. So it was a very small group of people. But that would be exciting. That would be a real movement of the Holy Spirit to be a part of that and seeing that. So what do you do with all these people? How, what are the priorities now of being in this new generation that God's called us to, the new community that God's called us to? And that's where verse 42 to 47 really distills down the priorities of these early Christians. And here's the main, main takeaway. What we see in the early churches, they had a commitment to Christ, a commitment to one another, and therefore they became compelling to the world around them. And likewise, for us today, our commitment to Christ and our commitment to one another causes us to be compelling to the world around us. So by the Spirit, this can be true. So let me look, let's look at this in, in these three points. Commitment, how do we see their commitment to Christ, their commitment to one another, <clears throat> and then how were they compelling to the world around them? First, they were a community committed to Christ. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. The word uh, devoted here means they persisted in it. It was a commitment. It was something habitual about them. And, and notice the four areas that were mentioned. Sitting under Christ-centered teaching, being in fellowship together, participating in communion, and prayers. I mean, if, imagine being one of these early believers, right? And it, they didn't, the, the first thing they were saying it wasn't like rocket science. It's not complicated. It's come into these simple things. And guess where we got these? Oh, Jesus taught us all this when we were walking with him in the Gospels. These are, this is Christian discipleship. This is, this is the basics of the faith, and it's powerful. And this is what the Spirit can do in us. Notice the first one. It was a commitment a commitment to Christ begins with knowing Christ. The first saying mentioned, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Or you could say the apostolic teaching of God's word. So the first message to a new disciple wasn't, go and do this. It was come and learn, grow. And as a church community, no one graduates from learning Christ. That's why we're all here. We're we are learners. We, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ, is learning. It's how we start, and it's how we continue in the faith. We're always learning Christ. So that was the first devotion. A commitment to Christ begins with being committed to the knowing of Christ. This is God's way of shaping our lives to become more and more like Jesus. Hearing God's word orients us around who he is and how this works. It's important to say this because God's word, as you read Acts, God's word is his active agent accomplishing his purposes. So as you read Acts, it's the word of God going forth, spreading, multiplying, 
changing lives. So it's the, it's the, uh, the apostolic teaching that is um, transforming people by the Spirit. So that's what the Spirit of God is going to use. When the Spirit descended, he has the means of the Bible that he's using. It's important to notice this. Little caveat here. And that sound doesn't bother. I love that sound. Yeah. <laughs> it's this important caveat here. It says the apostolic teaching. Well, now I really encourage you, right? It's, the, it's, the, it's called the apostolic teaching. Um, so really important. It's not just teaching the Bible. It's the apostolic, the, how the apostles were teaching the Bible. Let me, let me just explain what, what this means. This is in contrast to their generation, how the scribes and Pharisees regularly taught the Bible, okay? Um, so if you taught the law, let's say you're going through Ten Commandments of Moses, without the gospel, that's not apostolic teaching. Apostolic teaching understood it in the context of Christ and him crucified. So the apostolic teaching is the Bible as it unfolds in the person and work of Jesus. Uh, this wasn't a new interpretive method by the apostles. This is what they learned from Jesus. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, it says this. Uh, Jesus rebuked uh, the Pharisees and scribes for actually teaching the wrong way. He said this in verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them um, you have eternal life, but it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me that you refuse to come to me, therefore you refuse to have eternal life. So he's rebuking them for them searching the scriptures but not getting to Christ, which is the point of the Bible. It's the focus. It's the climax. So their generation taught the Bible every week in the synagogue, but Jesus is saying you're missing the point of it. The whole Bible is really an unfolding to bear witness to him. That's apostolic teaching. That's the apostolic teaching they were coming under for the first time. This would have been a huge transformation. I mean, remember the week before, all these people gathered around and were in the synagogue hearing the scrolls read without a Messiah. Now they're submitting to the same scrolls being read with understanding the Messiah has come in Jesus. I mean, talk about a radical change of hearing and teaching. But it's the first order, first commitment they get. And again, like I said, this is how Jesus taught his disciples to understand the Bible. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, at the end of the gospel, Jesus was with two people who didn't recognize him. They were prevented from that. But, and then he opened the Bible. And this is what Jesus did with his Bible when he opens it. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's how Jesus reads the Bible. Is Everything is culminating in, in Jesus. And that's why Peter, in his sermon, he would take from Joel, and then he would quote from Psalms, and he's applying it to the Christ who has come. And this is why he would conclude, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you know apostolic teaching when the true hero of the Bible story is Jesus, our creator and redeemer. When it's an unfolding story that Jesus is the true king that we've longed for and needed. The Old Testament anticipated the kingdom of God. Jesus inaugurated it and will one day finally consummate it. 
That's the apostolic teaching of the Bible that they were submitting to. That's what they were learning for them. And so, and notice that the Bible was really shaping the church. Notice it isn't the church over the Bible, but the Bible was over the church. It was shaping their lives and molding them. That's what we're seeing. And that's why they were, these early disciples were committed to this apostolic teaching. And so this commitment to Christ begins with hearing, knowing, learning, studying, pondering, inwardly digesting God's word to be changed by it. That's the that's the, that's the first devotion that they had. And apparently, it, it was done in a mix of large gatherings, because verse 46 mentioned they were meeting together in the temple. But also, they were gathering from house to house. There's probably a mix of, of hearing this teaching in various settings. And this teaching was also in, accompanied with a strong uh, apologetic. Look at verse 43. There was a... It says that there were many wonders and signs that were being performed by the apostles. So as a proof of their teaching, they also sought evidence, or they gave, it was an apologetic, really, to what they were saying through, that, through the signs and wonders. And we see in the, in the way how, Bible, how signs and wonders works in the Bible, they come in um, real pockets. So they're not random and consistent always through the whole Bible, but they, they come in at just intense times. So the time of Moses, you see a lot of miracles and signs and wonders. And then Elijah and Elisha, so the, the time of the, some of the prophets, and then Jesus and the apostles. And I think the takeaway from this is that when, before revelation has come, it's, it's confirmation of, of God's word. And there's no capital A apostles anymore. So the apostolic teaching today would be teaching the New Testament in light of the old and teaching the old in light of the new. So uh, this is our commitment. It begins with God's word. So their commitment to Christ began there. And I suppose if, uh, if that was the only commitment it took, it's possible, maybe, that this first commitment could be done virtually. Like, oh, podcasts, books at home, just sermon tapes, or whatever, you, digital <laughs> tapes. I don't even have tapes anymore, I don't think. Uh, maybe I didn't. Um, but, in, but notice the next three commitments of the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers uh, involve relationships, so in person. Um, and so when they were committed to all of these, they weren't just committed to one, they were committed to all four of these. And these were shaping them as well, as well as the gathering. And the Greek word here behind fellowship, so it, the second one, they were committed to fellowship is koinonia, which can also mean partnership. So the church, therefore, is partnered with Christ, tied to Christ, shared in Christ, fellowship with Christ, and transforming our relationships with one another. So the unity between Christ and his church, the people, we are now connected in a special way to God, in a living way by the Spirit. And the commitment to Jesus changes our relationship. Remember the Father's plan was to adopt a people for his own, a people who would belong to him. And that's what Jesus taught his disciples. He said, for whoever does the will of God, he or she, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my mother. I mean, we become the family of God as well. So we become uniquely connected, the fellowship as well. And what, a, what some big changes were happening from the synagogue life to now in this new culture, counterculture of the church. The use of the definite uh, 
like the definite article, the, for the fellowship, like you get the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the ESV translates it, uh, the prayers, probably showed like a liturgical format to this meeting, as well as the informal one, because they're going house to house. So both were mentioned, both probably some formal aspect, but then some informal life. But this uh, emphasis in verse 42 on the breaking of bread is probably reference to the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate today. And isn't it interesting that they made a commitment, we're going to keep the person and work of Christ, what he did on the cross, central in our meetings because it was all about him. So they had a priority of participating in this fellowship centered with the Lord's Supper to remind them it's all about what Christ has done for us. And of course, the prayers. Their worship would involve praying. And Jesus instilled this deeply in his disciples. When Jesus ascended to his father, his right hand, the first thing the disciples did, their their go-to, like their default mode was, let's gather in this room upstairs, 120 people, the apostles with men and women, and we're going to pray. And they started praying. And that's what they learned from Christ. And, and Jesus is the one who taught them this. Uh, they heard Jesus pray, and they, and they heard Jesus address God as Abba, Father. They learned that there's a new uh, connection with God uh, of intimacy, that we can call God our heavenly Father. That fresh understanding of prayer captured them in their corporate gathering as well as their personal lives. And prayer is a lifeline to our Heavenly Father. And when we see it, when we're with God's people, we can pray together. The pastor, H.B. Charles, said this. He said, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. Prayer is, is, let me read it again. Prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. I mean, think of it this way. The things you pray about the most are the things you trust God to do. And the things you don't pray about the most are the things you trust you can handle. It's arguably the most uh, committed thing. And so the fact that they were committed to the praying, just reminds you, they knew they needed God for this for this to work out. It wasn't, they weren't just um, robots in this, but they had, they realized we needed the Lord and they wanted to be involved. So those are the, those are their commitments to Christ. Commitment to his word, commitment to worship, commitment to being together. But also, secondly, they had a commitment to one another. They had a real commitment to one another. Listen again as I read verse 44 to 45. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. This is a profound community. Uh, there have been those in church history who took this descriptive passage and attempted to live it out 100%. For example, in the early 1200s, Francis of Assisi, he was the founder of the Franciscans. He had a profound conversion experience. And as a young adult in his 20s, he came from a very wealthy family. As a young adult in his 20s, he legally uh, disinherited himself. He made a vow of absolute poverty. Well, it attracted thousands of followers, and they kind of formed a monastic community in this way. But as you read the Bible in this passage, in light of the whole, 
I don't think I don't think we need to conclude that the Spirit is leading us to a monastic, separate from society, about to absolute poverty. Because notice they have homes that people are still going to, and they have food to give them. So someone's got to have private property. Someone's got to be able to have the means to do this. So, but I don't want to overlook too quickly what a beautiful community this was. So let, let me let me draw four observations. I'm just thinking about this community. So first of all, notice they had lasting friendships. I mean, endearing friendships. Like, you can't get rid of me kind of friendships. This is, look at the frequency of, of their activities. Everyone, every day, all the believers, every day, all the people, every day. <laughs> That's from the text. So, the, so you know, this, this group was, they liked being together, all right? This is, this is quite an exciting time for them. So you must have really enjoyed this. They had real profound friendships. Another, another thing to note, though, secondly, is their generosity. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and gave as anyone had need. Obviously, their faith in Christ of a better city to come helped them loosen the grip on their life in their private world. They wanted to share. They were generous and loving community. Their generosity is seen in both financial means as well as in helping others, hospitality. They opened their homes. They took people out the meals and things like that. A really beautiful thing. And it's just a reminder, again, that the church is not simply an aggregation of individuals who are saved, but it's the prototype of what humanity would look like under the Lordship of Christ. It's an example of what humanity can look like under the Lordship of Christ. And Jesus was generous. This is, this is the one who didn't come to get and get and get, but he came to give and give and give and give his life as a ransom for many. And so this is just deeply shaped in their whole, how they view their property, which they can rightly have and have a place of ministry and hosting. But third, notice another observation, third, honesty. It was a community that cared and created space for people to share their needs. <laughs> notice they knew who had needs. They, they heard their stories Remember the transition. You're, you're, in a, you're in a culture where you, the religion is Judaism and the government is Roman and you're following Jesus now. It may have implications on your career. It may have implications on your family, on your home life. Who knows what could have happened with those 3,000 people? And guess what? They're having space. They're inviting them in the homes and they're hearing what has been hard about following Christ or what are your needs? How can we care for you? And this spawned in them, they're poorer than us. They're, maybe the person you're hearing, hearing doesn't have the opportunities you have, and you're, you're moved to a diaconal concern for that person. You're, you're moved to, to help and to serve. That was, but it was a place of honesty. And the fourth thing I just want to mention, this was a joyful community. It says they ate their food with joy. I, I don't know, just smiling while they're eating. And ate their food with joy. What a description. And sincere hearts, just so given to one another, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. Now, this didn't last very long. They did get persecuted very quickly. I think end of chapter 3, we start to see that tense up. And then chapter 5, we're going to see even that church community, there was deception. So, But right now, they're experiencing the favor of all the people at this stage. So under the Lordship of Christ... Here they are, they're gathering. They're rejoicing in the forgiveness of sins. They're rejoicing in the inward work of the Holy Spirit. They're changed. The Messiah has come. They're eating with glad hearts. They're, they're just responding 
And they're experiencing these lasting friendships, these enduring relationships, uh, generosity, honesty, care, uh, and joy. Ah, This portrait of the early church is only made possible by the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. A church committed to Christ through his word and worship, and then a church committed to one another, caring for one another, creates a real powerful, compelling witness to the world. This is our third point, just the compelling witness to the world. Our passage ends by stating this. It said this, every day the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. Every day. Notice how it was God who added to their number. They knew that they knew no one was there because they're the smartest in Jerusalem. They knew no one was there because they, they, they figured it out and no one else did. They were there because of God's sovereign grace and opening their eyes, calling them out of darkness and putting them there. And if anyone else is going to be added, it's going to be all of God. And that's what he was doing. The Lord added to their number. But they also were aware of who their number were. They also were aware of their brothers and sisters. They're, they're a family now. So they were aware of who's joining, who's a, who's a part of this, who's, who's, who's the Lord adding to them. Think of the Holy Spirit's supernatural power just come over them and they realize the church, the congregation, we're God's most genius plan for evangelism. The church is the best evangelist in the book of Acts, more than any one apostle. Gospel conversations are meant to be a natural way of life for the congregation. Most of the people that become Christians, as you read the book of Acts, came through the ordinary people of the church, not through always just one person. And what would stop a loving, magnetic, gospel-sharing community in the world? What a compelling community, right? The church, because it has a clear message and it has evidence of changed lives. As the early church was an intentional community to hear God's word, they were intentional about the communion and the prayers, so they were intentional about sharing their faith with others and their family and friends. They were compelling in this way. Now, in the first century, they had an advantage that we don't have in our, our century necessarily, but their advantage was, <clears throat> here they are in Jerusalem, right? So think about everyone who's there. What do they have going for them? They all know the Old Testament. (laughs) So can you, um, the whole Testament is like pre-evangelism. It's pointing you to Jesus Christ. So imagine a group of people uh, who are hearing now the Lord Jesus come and it's it's making sense to them because they have the context for it. They have the Old Testament. Um, I don't know if this illustration helps, but imagine your whole life you you've heard a great, wonderful joke, and you just never knew the punchline. But you kept hearing it, and you knew it. You knew that, man, this joke, I think, is really good. But I do not know what makes it so funny or why I keep hearing it. And then your nephew comes over, who was at this Christian meeting, and then he explains, oh, here's the punchline to the joke. And you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. So this Jewish culture... They're hearing the, the context of Christ and the Messiah, and, it, and the religious dots are getting connected. 
And that's why they're being added to the church every day. Because God's drawing them and connecting them to them. And that's the beauty of where they were. But as you read in Acts, the farther they go away from Jerusalem, notice that this one gospel begins to get adapted in how they present it. So when you're in Acts 17, for example, Paul's going to be in Athens in the Areopagus where there's Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. And notice he does a different appeal. So it's really important for us culturally to realize this, our generation. You know, we're far from Jerusalem. And we're a post-Christian context of the world, but this is a great opportunity for a fresh missional engagement with people about the claims of Christ. You may have friends who already believe there's a God. You may have friends who already feel convicted about their sin, and a gospel presentation is what they need. And you need the courage to go out and give that to them. But a lot of your friends may not have that background. They might not even believe in God. They might not even think there's salvation. And they might think the church is just a horrible place to begin with. So how, and yet you're called a witness to this generation as well. So how will we win our generation? Some of us are good at sowing and others will reap. You know, and the sowing is the hard work. It's the removing of stones. It's the asking the questions. It's the giving a case. It's it's interacting, and we all can be a part of this in some way. We all have a part in you know, the body of Christ. It's the communal mission. It's the, it's the uh, uh, mob evangelism, right, or gang, gang evangelism. It's, it's what we do together, guys. We have a great message, but in our context, not everyone is ready to hear the gospel. They, they don't, you might say, oh, Jesus will save you. You're like, save me from what? Who's Jesus? What are you talking about? <laughs> So you, it's just not as simple as maybe this first century context was, where they already had Jewish background. And a lot of our friends don't. And so we need to think through, what does missional engagement look like here? We do have a glorious message. We have a, a ruler, a God who's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. People have rebelled. They've turned away from God. They've sinned against God and refused to uh, be right with him. Um, but God, in his love, he sent a redeemer, a rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who lived a perfect life that I should have lived, and he died a death that I deserve to die. And he did all this for, because of his love for us. And my only response, our only response to that is to repent. And repentance is to trust in Jesus and not yourself. It's to turn away from trust yourself and to rely completely on Jesus. We do have a good message, a good mes- message and. But how will people know this? Well, it might take some sowing of, of discussions and spending time with people, meals and hospitality. And that's the joy of this work that we're called to do. And inviting them into a compelling community. They need to meet Christians. And, and it should be a good experience. Uh, in 1974, Francis Schaeffer <clears throat> spoke at the International Congress on World Evangelization in Lausanne, Switzerland. And in his address, he noted that historically, evangelicals have been good at faithfulness to the message of the gospel, but relatively weak in creating community that reflects the gospel in our lives together. And he admonished the audience in four ways. He said, for us to have a profound gospel advance in our time, and we all want that, he says, and our churches need to be marked with these four realities, sound doctrine, Honest answers to honest questions, true spirituality, and this fourth one, listen to this fourth one, the beauty of human relationships. 
Reorland defined it like this. Gospel doctrine minus gospel culture is hypocrisy. In David Kinman's book, Unchristian, he claimed 85% of young non-Christians perceive Christianity to be hypocritical. In other words, Orland's uh, equation makes sense. <clears throat> gospel doctrinized gospel culture will just create a disconnect. People won't, won't believe the message. And it's widely perceived to be that way, if 85% of young non-Christians. So orthodox doctrine is clear enough. We all want to align ourselves with the Bible. But a gracious culture is harder to define. It, it's a matter of relational tone and vibe and feel and forgiveness and sticking with people and hanging out. You're probably used to apologetics, maybe having like a rational argument for the defense of the faith or existence of God. But Francis Schaeffer calls this the community, a beautiful community. He calls it the relational apologetic. Listen to this. Francis Schaeffer said, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the ultimate apologetic. Because it's often people's first experience with Christianity is going to be the community of the people. God is a missionary God, and God is primary missionary, and God's primary missionary method are his covenant people. Our commitment to Christ of being in his word and prayer and worship and our commitment to one another with good deeds and generosity make us a compelling community of both good words and good service to others. And the goal of all this is that we might see people come to the joyous worship of our God and Savior, to be rescued from the judgment of sin, to experience new life in Christ. Because God first loved us, we have a message as one sinner to another. Like a father who longs for the return of his lost son, God loves sinners. He is actively seeking them out through his people, through our prayers, through our community through our love, through our questions, through our listening, through our hospitality, through our message. Let's pray. Yes, Father, we pray you would search us and know us, see if there's any gravest way in us. And then, God, don't leave us there, <clears throat> but lead us in that everlasting way of life. Father, we pray that um, as a community of your people, we could better reflect um, both the ministry of the word, the ministry of worship, the ministry of serving one another, and the ministry of just being in hospitality, ministry of our outreach and love for people. Lord, search us as a church community. Shape us um, like Jesus, Lord. We pray for that, Lord. We want to grow in areas. Lord, and as individuals as well, we pray, Lord, that we would reflect this. We thank you for your work of coming uh, thank you, Jesus, for putting this uh, essential uh, things that we are to be about. It's a great reminder for us today. May we take the heart and really see it worked out in our daily life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.